Just a heads up, this episode does contain some adult language. Anybody who does the arts for a career who isn't super famous, um, anyone who's operating at my level, if they tell you that they're making all their money doing art, they're lying to you. I guarantee you. Hi, welcome to the Creative Curry Podcast. My name is Dinesha Katigesu, and I am a storyteller and coach. I believe we all have stories we want to tell and creativity we want to express. So every two weeks, my producer Safwan and I sit down with creators from all industries for me to interrogate them. <laughs> I mean, have conversations with them about the work they're doing and to find their recipes for a creative life. This episode's guest is Sean Patrick Mulroy. Sean is a writer, actor, visual artist and musician from the American South who now lives all over the world. An award-winning professor, Sean has an MFA in creative writing, is a 2013 Lambda Literary Fellow and has been a writer-in-residence at both Orlando, Florida and in Sisma, Finland. In today's conversation, it's all about poetry and queerness. We discuss growing up, button poetry, slam culture and even how poetry has changed in the US. Towards the end of the episode, he reads his poem titled Whispers for Arminius and we talk about queer history and mythology. So with that, here's Sean Patrick Mulroy. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for saying yes to this podcast. Oh yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, uh, catching you while you're in Malaysia, <laughs> uh, even though this episode's coming out in 2020. Oh, wow. So yeah, we are okay. pre-recording in advance and banking it. Dope. So yeah, get to celebrate sort of the new year with you and right. the next season. Yeah. Um, so the first question, like I mentioned on our car ride here, mm -hmm. is um, I usually ask for like, where's your best curry? What's your curry recommendation? So in your adventures here in Malaysia, has there been any? Um, well, okay. So admittedly, um, I love some curry, but my experience with curry has actually been super limited because my mother hates curry. Oh. Um, specifically, I think she just doesn't like turmeric. Um, but... Uh, I love it and I love spice and she hates spice um, so I've had a chance to really get into uh, curry I think more since I've been in Southeast Asia I will say that I have been traveling for almost six months now yeah. so right now I'm experiencing like a real weakness for western food so I haven't had as much curry as I should be having while I'm here yeah. um, but uh, anything that is spicy enough to activate heat without like hurting me physically <laughs> um you know that's the thing like it's funny like you know i'm like ostentatiously white looking for those of you at home who can't see me yeah uh, so like as a result like i think even in america when i go to a restaurant and i ask for something to be hot like they don't believe me oh, they um, think you're oh, this is why boy i cannot handle it yeah i mean like you know I, it's a little touchy but yes <laughs> like <laughs> so i'm used to that being the case when i was in thailand uh i was like yeah i'll have you know this that and the other thing add some rice or something and they're like oh you sure like that dish is very hot and i'm like oh, yes great like, yes, I will have some some hot food. I'm not going to die. And I don't know if they actually made it hotter just to mess with me, but I'm pretty sure that they were being sincere when they were like, oh, it's really hot. I, like, took a bite and started to cough. 
Ooh. It was so embarrassing. But best believe, I sat there and like through tears and sweat, I ate that whole plate. Like, <laughs> like I was just not, to prove that point. Just right? to prove the point that it's like I asked for this, I ordered this, I'm going to finish this. And like, look, it's not like food in Thailand is expensive. Like it's super cheap. Um, so it's not like it was even about that. It was just about waste, but also just like I, my pride. Um, <laughs> that's it. Since I've gotten here, um, you know, I've had some really really good stuff. Just. Uh, I'm getting to the point where if I didn't see another piece of seafood for a while, I'd be all set. Um, I have always been weak for sushi. I love sushi. I'll Ooh. eat sushi any day. Yeah. Um, but uh, as soon as you cook the fish, for some reason, I, I get less interested. Okay. Okay. Um, so and and there's like the whole like hyper western squeamishness around like anything that is recognizably a part of an animal okay like i prefer my meat like homogenous and like post animal right yeah you know i don't need to see like a face right yeah so sometimes you see a fish with like a whole fin or like a face on it and then i'm done so like i think i've had a really uh i've had some really good luck with just like some like flavorful colorful rice meat-free Lots of spice, mm. nice and wet. I don't like a um, mushy rice, but I do like like a moist, like sort of dense. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, but has there been any curry recommendations like back in the states or anywhere in your travel so far? Oh man! I mean, other than my mother being like, "Don't have any," <laughs> 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 which like I don't even know what that's about. Um, you know, I think. Uh, some of my favorite dishes are like embarrassingly like they're westernized for sure. Okay. Like there's okay. like a there's like a Rogan Josh that I love. Ooh. Um but it was like a beef Rogan Josh. Okay. Which is like sort of contra. Yeah, contra. sure, sure, sure. Um but yeah, one of my favorite Indian restaurants back in the United States is this place that makes a mean beef Rogan Josh, which okay. I love, even though like after like some experience I'm like, wait, this is entirely not the point. Like this should not be <laughs> it should be chicken. Um but it's still uh really friggin' good. So okay. yeah. What's the name of the restaurant? Um, oh, I believe uh, it is called Taste of India. It's something okay. really cliched. It's in Alston, uh, Massachusetts. If you ever have a chance to go to Boston and go to the suburb of Alston, it's at the intersection of Commonwealth Avenue and Brighton Avenue. It's right there next to a an okay Vietnamese place and above average Thai place. There is an Indian restaurant that's been there for 20 years and they wow. have really good beef rogan josh. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is a, actually a whole subset of Indians who do eat beef. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, it's, see, it's, there you go. It's, I mean, it's well, a complicated relationship yeah. Yeah. Um, di- divided by religion and even states in India. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a whole thing. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would have, like, if you quizzed me, it would have been like, well, yes, obviously there's going to be diversity among any population. But mm. I assume that that particular dish, like, came from an area where people weren't eating beef. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, I haven't seen it offered anywhere else. That's the other yeah, thing. So I just yeah. assumed, like, the first time I asked for it, I was like, oh, wait, like, am I being ignorant? Like, <laughs> that's usually my assumption is that I'm being ignorant. No, but it's in the menu, right? So it's not It's not like you asked for that meat, no? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, like, would, like, comb a menu and be like, you have this? You know, in uh, the same way that, like, when I got really into Pad Thai, like, just for whatever reason, I started eating beef pad thai. Okay. Which, at least in the States, is, like, super uncommon. Mm. Um, It's almost always chicken or shrimp and not beef. And so, like, over time, I just sort of got used to eating the chicken version instead because I never see it offered. Yeah. Um, So I assumed when I never saw it offered anywhere else that that was just, like, a westernized version of the dish, and that's why. But... Ah. Shows what I know. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, we've got some wonderful curry recommendations for the US. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone's visiting, they can go and check it out. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk a bit about childhood. Okay. Right? Like about growing up and things like that. Were you very creative as a yes. kid? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, so the first time that I wrote a book, this is like one of my like 
anecdotes about myself. So um, when I was like four years old, my mother is also an artist um, and, you know, probably will come up a lot when I'm talking because she's very influential on me. Um, you know, my mother was also an artist and, and a school teacher and a bunch of other things. And there was a yard sale. Um, you know, like an estate sales type thing where they were getting rid of a bunch of crap like across the street from us. And one of the things they got rid of uh, was a Xerox machine. And this was like 1985, okay? So first of all, we're talking about a Xerox machine that's like four feet tall. Um, I don't know how to do metrics, so sorry. Yeah. But like, yeah. like, it's about this wide? No. <laughs> um, JK, it, it, it's it's about, um, I would say about like like a meter wide sure, and sure. like a yeah. meter tall. That's pretty it's big. Huge. Yeah, it's yeah. a huge machine, right? Um, and it was like this big deal like that we got the Xerox machine for super cheap, you know? Um, and we had it in our basement and like this was not I mean this is before the days of like home printing like you just didn't have like we didn't have a computer we didn't have anything we had this huge Xerox machine it's bizarre yeah. right and my mom loved it because she was a teacher so she could like Xerox printouts for herself she didn't have to pay for them at the coffee machine or whatever um, but I took a library book I had on cats and um, I Xeroxed the pictures out of it and then like drew around them and like wrote new captions and like created like an entire like new story about like a cat being kidnapped by aliens. Um, and I was like four when I did that, right? Um, I'm one of those people who luckily enough, like I don't remember not being able to read. Uh, I don't remember not being uh, somebody who wrote. And like uh, my first adult like creative outlet was songwriting because uh, I, I have been um, able to sing in a way that I think many people aren't able to sing. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I thought that was where I needed to go because that's where like my like raw talent was. But I think uh, my inclinations have always been to be someone who told stories since I was like very, very young. So yeah, I've always been very creative. My mother was an art teacher, so that helped. But I think even still, the impulse was always there. Yeah. Mm. Was Did you then invest in the sort of this, this raw talent of song, uh, songwriting, start, uh, singing and things like that? Yeah. So when I was about, um, God, about 15, I got a guitar. I had learned how to play piano already and I'd started to write songs. Um, but then there was like a songwriting camp I was going to go to. There was like a writer's camp in the United States, uh, called the Young Writers Workshop. It's out of the University of Virginia. It's super influential. A lot of really cool people have gone there. Um, off the top of my head, like the guy who came up with auto-tune the news, which, uh, wow. like went there. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. people who've written some really like, you know, award winning, like books of poetry and stuff like that have, have gone there. So it was like this weird little melting pot. Um, this little, uh, that's the word I'm looking for. Not melting pot. What do you call it? When it's like a bunch of people getting together and incubator. Some, incubator. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's like a weird little incubator for these artists. Yeah. But, um, so I wanted to be a songwriter after, uh, signing up for a songwriting camp there and so I started teaching myself guitar because I couldn't bring my whole piano with me <laughs> um, and I've always found keyboards to be an inferior instrument they're just not the same they have no soul um, sorry to all the keyboardists yeah, out no, there no, look, look, you want to play you want to play a keyboard that's fine but like in terms of like uh, I mean it, it's not even the difference between an electric guitar and a guitar. It's like the difference between a guitar and a ukulele. Like it's a smaller mm. instrument. Even though there's things you can do with a synthesizer that are like, I mean, anything you want to do in the world. Yeah. Right. But uh, a piano has like a soul to it. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so I think uh, learning to play guitar was a big part of learning how to write songs because it was a limitation. Um, I'm really into um, filters, limitations. 
Uh, Why was it a limitation? Um, because I'm not a very good guitar player. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a great piano player, but um, you know, even if you're not a great piano player, like there's some tricks to learn how to play a lot of songs. Okay. Um, and it doesn't hurt your fingers to play the piano. Mm. Um, but uh, playing the piano and singing is easy because piano fills a lot of space. Yes. Right. You yeah. can hit the notes and hold the sustain pedal, and yeah. that's a lot of music. Yeah. Right? Whereas with a guitar, you have about the length of one strum before you have to hit it again. Yeah. And if you don't have a very good sense of rhythm in terms of like keeping time, which I don't, mm. um, and you're trying to do something else like sing, it's incredibly limiting. Mm. Incredibly limiting. So um, I think. Uh, because I was somebody who kind of grew up in the church and was singing a lot in Christian choir and then was like known to be a very good singer in my evangelical touring choir. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> really? Evangelical touring really? choir? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, predictably, I lost my way in that, in that uh, <laughs> as I got older and uh, figured out the whole gay thing. But, yes. uh, you know, prior to that, I think that was like a big... Uh, creative outlet for me and then I wanted to write sad songs uh, about my uh, so difficult life as like an upper middle class white teenager in the you know the United States mm. uh, but you know um, yeah the fact that I could do things with my voice that I think other people couldn't do I assumed that that's where I was going to go because that was where my gifts seemed to be yeah um, certainly Music is a more popular art form in the United States anyway, just full stop, uh, than just about anything else. Uh, but also, music is a flashy art form. And everyone grows up listening to music, so everyone has a... Um, everyone's an armchair critic of music. Mm. Most people don't believe that they have the ability to criticize literature, um, even though they do. But uh, academics have done a number on the populace in terms of expertise. Mm. Um, they at once hate expertise uh, and also have taught everyone that they don't have it. Yeah. Right? Um, one of the reasons that I got, really the only reason I got involved in poetry at all, um, look, it was always part of my life insofar as like the way that it is for a lot of creative teenagers, okay? I had a lot of like... Crushes. Crushes and journal entries. Um, although in retrospect, I had an interest in poetic forms early. I wrote sonnets as a teenager. They are Ooh. so bad. <laughs> oh, they're so bad. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I was always writing like, you know, rhyming couplets about my, my deep existential pain. Um, and then, uh, you know, I thought I was cool when I like maybe wrote some poems on my wall with a Sharpie when I was a teenager. Right. But like, uh, can you imagine if I was one of those hosts that did my research and like, all right, Sean, we have one of your sonnets from teenage years <laughs> and like shove it at you now. Well, look, thank God, you know, the culture, uh, capital T, capital C around spoken word in the United States has, has become so commercialized and has really started to churn out poets at these younger and younger ages in a way that is so fucking American, pardon my language, but I mean like, Jesus Christ, like, you know, oh, look, uh, you know, this person can write poetry at 12 and it's like, okay, great. Like you taught a dog to walk on its hind legs. Okay. But like, this is not <laughs> the art, you know what I mean? That's not yeah. what it's for. Um, but of course, like as with everything in the United States, like there's this obsession with youth. And so I think, uh, 
you know, thank God that I was young before that was a thing with spoken word because right. those poems would be out there now. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, it'll be a book. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. But now they are safely locked in my childhood journals, which don't even exist in a digital form yet. So okay. no one can have them but me. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, I called your mom. And oh, my like, God, she wouldn't. She wouldn't. We? She wouldn't. I don't think she know. You know, the thing is, I will say, though, like, one of the things my parents, uh, this is kind of a weird way of putting this, but one of the things my parents uh, actively admire me for is my sense of organization. Ah. So I've always been a full-time traveler. I travel, like, a lot, you know, okay. since college. Um, and so, like, I can call them and be like, hey, so third box from the left on this shelf, you'll find this underneath a glass elephant. You'll find, like, this wow. thing. Can you send that to me here? Right. Okay, okay. And, like, for them, it's, like, super, uh, like, they're envious of it and, like, they, like, admire it. So it's actually really fun for them that I can, like, tell them exactly where stuff is. Um, so I could probably direct them to the correct journal. Okay. Right. But uh, they would have a hard time finding it otherwise, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, the reason, kind of kind of jumping forward a little bit, like yep, the reason sure. why I got involved in poetry as an mm. adult, uh, despite this sort of conditioning, I think, from, from American culture of poetry being this like very distant, highbrow thing that no one likes anymore, um, is because of slam. And slam poetry very deliberately, uh, at least in the beginning there, uh, and by the beginning, I mean the first 30 years of his existence, uh, was really uh, actively in pursuit of um, the voice of, for lack of a better term, the common man. Right? Sure. So like the guy who invented Poetry Slam was a construction worker, um, this sort of like working class guy from Chicago who wanted to take poetry away from the academics and bring it back to people. And it's kind of profound when you think about it that there is this person, this working class man who's not in a traditionary literary job. Um, traditionary. Traditional literary <laughs> job. <laughs> You've had a really long day, so yeah, it's, it's, well, it makes sense. And, and you know, uh, it, I think, you know, he, he was in that position uh, to create something so profoundly effective. But it was an incredibly dangerous idea, right? Because you, you take... Uh, something that has been traditionally the oof of the rich and the well-connected, and you take that and you say, okay, we're going to let these drunks at a bar tell us what's good and what isn't good of this art form. Mm. Um, and for those of us who I think grew up in that uh, culture at the right time, uh, it charged us with this desire to write work that was both um, good, right, because you want to be good, but also that was limited by what you could get a drunk at a bar at whatever time of night to understand yeah. and to appreciate. Yeah. Um, the worst of us just started writing things for the drunks, right? Um, the best of us continued to write for ourselves but kept this sort of audience in mind. Um, and so it's like necessarily discourages uh, the writer from being self-indulgent, which I think is the biggest trap of poetry, right? Because yeah. it can be navel-gazing. Mm. Um, to take that navel-gazing and make it universal, you have to consider who you're, who you're speaking to. Yeah. Um, there's like other schools of poetry, many, many schools of poetry throughout history that have had a similar goal. But certainly in recent times, uh, that has been what SLAM was for. Yeah. And... Um, that was the only way that I was ever going to get pulled away from something populist like music yeah, and put into poetry. Um, and it is a very populist art form when it's done, po when it's done properly. Um, 
one of my friends back in the United States, this woman, uh, Simone Bobien, who ran the Boston Poetry Slam for a really, really long time, pretty much by herself, um, talks about how, okay, well, people say they don't like poetry. That's like saying you don't like music. Everyone likes, it's, it's, it's a kind of art, yeah. you know? Um, it's just that we aren't taught poetry. And I think when you look at what we are and are not taught, um, in any culture, yeah. I think it points to what we're afraid of. Right? Really? Okay. Oh yeah. So American culture is is um, okay. So Henry James called America a motel society. Sure. Okay. Uh, everything is covered with a fresh coat of paint. The bed is changed every night. Um, you know, people come and go, and there is no impression left. Right. Uh, we are petrified of age. We're petrified of sickness and death. Um, we are horrified by any instance of sex or any kind of behavior that um, sort of deviates from what's considered acceptable, right? Yeah. So, like, profound exclamations of love, mm. okay? Um, if you look at what poetry is about, really what all literature is about uh, is, is love, sex, and death. Mm. But poetry, because it's so condensed, because it's so distilled, um, it can be almost violent in its exclamations uh, about those things. Right. Um, it's effective, Mm. The point of poetry is to make you feel something. Right. Right? And so America doesn't like art anyway. Uh, but then when you get into art that has, uh, that, that reminds us of, of all these things that I think might pull us out of being obsessed with buying the next thing, right? Then you've got a problem. So poetry taught in high school to students up until very, very recently. It was Shakespeare and Robert Frost, and that was it. You know, you might get a Dickinson poem in there, right? You know, uh, but these are poets who are obviously brilliant, and like I love Shakespeare, but uh, that's not what you want to start somebody out with. That's not your. That's not your entry point. You want yeah. to talk to somebody who's like writing poetry in your language yeah. you know like your spoken language so because um, it's very intimidating right of when you well, and, and yeah. it, it's it's entirely possible especially considering how encouraged we are to not think okay and to be anti-intellectual and anti-expert right because it, there's the thought that expertise is necessarily snooty right um when you're taught those things, I think it's very easy to look at a poem by Shelley. Mm. You know, you might get like Ozymandias if you're lucky, okay? Yeah. And be like, okay, well, how does this relate to me? You know, this doesn't, not only is this old language, you know, you, you think of these people dressed in these frilly clothes, you know, and you don't really think of poetry as a living, breathing object, but it is. Mm. You know, people are writing poetry all the time. And Slam, despite the fact that in many ways I think at this point it's kind of ended as an incubator. Um, it has done the work that it was going to do and has unfortunately kind of become this other thing that I don't like. Uh, what it has done, uh, and I think it's been global, is is it's allowed younger people to experience poetry, uh, whether good or bad, yeah. as a living object, right. right? Sure, a lot of it's gonna be some of this stuff from button poetry that is what I would refer to as essays at a volume, mm. right? Um, where it's like a series of political statements yeah. um, or like a series of opinions without a lot of like factual backup. Mm. And, you know, maybe if you're lucky, you get like an image, right? Um, 
and so we're clear the people who run Button are like buddies of mine. Like I love those guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You I are run, in Button, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah you yeah. are in Button. Yeah, and, and like yeah. look, I'm not a slam champion. Okay, sure. I was one of those people who, in the slam culture, like if you were somebody in slam, you probably knew who I was because either you'd heard me say something bad about you behind your back, or <laughs> <laughs> um, you had seen my work and you thought, oh, like there's somebody who does like you know, artists' work, right? Like I was like the guy that that other artists liked. Um, but I didn't win slams. Sure. Okay. And part of that's how I present, right? And okay. part of that's because my subject matter, I was uncompromising, right? I didn't want to talk about other people's political struggles. Part of that was timing, whatever, luck. Yeah. But um, I ended up with a lot of hits on Button because, frankly, because I knew the guys who ran Button and they liked my work and they wanted yeah. to run my work. Yeah. So I lucked out in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I remember when Button was an idea that they had and we were talking about it at like four in the morning on a rooftop at the end of the National Poetry Slam, you know? Uh, and so, you know, even though I can point to really deleterious effects uh, that no one saw coming in terms of Button being a very normalizing culture, it's made everybody sound the same yeah. around. Yeah, that's an actual conversation world. we have here. Yeah. It's so rough. Um, you know, uh, it also has made a lot of people uh, a lot of money. It's yeah. made a lot of people careers. You know, mm. the people who run Button don't actually make a lot of money themselves. They make a living yeah. doing something that they love, sure. but they work their asses off, one. And two, uh, we're not talking six figures here. We're talking low five figures. It's enough to live on. It's not great. Uh, but certainly there are poets whose careers have been made by their videos and that's on Button. Button. Yeah. Right. And if not their actual individual appearances on Button, then just the culture that Button has created of putting poetry back in the school. Yeah. Right? Living poetry. Yeah. Living poetry. Because um, it's a great documentation process, right? This, yeah, that this too. Documenting I mean, all this work. God. And they were so diligent, you know. Um, what, I, what I really respect about Button is they really put an effort into, you know, they had like five guys. And they would put a lot of effort into covering as much as they could. Um, eventually, after Button was sort of uh, too expensive for the National Poetry Slam to run, and they decided to run a different service on the cheap, another guy who I really respect as a person, um, but who was basically picking the poets that he knew would get hits. Sure. So, you okay. Know, so that's like, now great. a different like, curation. Oh, awesome. Like you know, you're gonna record every Rudy Sam- Rudy Francisco about like great, but like Rudy's poems are already online. He's already famous. So like yeah, you're getting more hits for you, but you're not creating new stars. Yeah. And Button created new stars. Mm. Um, unfortunately, after the National Poetry Slam ended, uh, and also after their relationship with Button ended. Uh, they created mostly new stars out of college poets, and that's where you're getting your essays at a volume, right? Because, see, the original point of Slam was taking poetry out of academia and putting it into the hands of the working class. Mm. But regardless of the fancy youth of said academics, they're still academics. They still have a very uh, homogenized sense of what is correct and what isn't. Right? And I'm not even talking about, like, the basic conversation we'd be having about cancel culture. I'm talking about the fact that these are people who have been educated by the same system. Mm. So regardless of their militants, uh, there's still people who have been trained to think the same way. Yeah. Um, and so it began to homogenize further. And I think that kind of brought about the end of the usefulness of slam as a culture. Yeah. But crawling all the way back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my transition from music, which was something that I think is a very like physical process, to poetry, which is only physical when you really work at it and is much more intellectualized, came from slam, where it was this performative aspect and then the just 
amazing opportunity to have instant gratification. Yeah. Right? It's like the difference between recording uh, like a film and acting on stage. Yep. Right? So publishing poetry is really not satisfying at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first of all, it's a lot of rejection and then a lot of your acceptances are through friendships. Um, and, you know, if any poet tells you that they didn't use connections to get what their publications are, they are likely lying to you. Mm. Um, after one or two publications, you're going to be published by your friends. Um, uh, you know, it doesn't have the same tangible uh, reward that you get from walking onto a, a spoken word stage and reading a poem and watching an entire audience shift their posture because of what you're saying. Mm. Um, and that is such an incredibly uh, uh, intoxicating experience that I think it kept me in poetry even more than I uh, was ever invested in music for much longer, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, because there's that reaction, right? Yeah, I think the word you used, intoxicating, that's a powerful and very apt word. Yeah, well, and as a performer for poetry, right? So, as an, well, okay, as an audience member for poetry, poetry is either going to be really, really good or really, really bad, mm. okay? Because the vehicle of poetry is so often... Uh, it works against its delivery of information, okay? Someone getting up on stage and saying some words is not really that great. And a lot of people who are poets are very introspective or shy people. Um, and so when an introspective or shy person who hasn't had an opportunity to really consider their audience gets on stage and reads a poem about their feelings, what you get is a lot of like old white ladies reading about their cats. Right? <laughs> Um, and that's great for them, but it's not going to do a whole lot for your audience, right? Yeah, yeah. So then you start breaking those pieces out, right? So someone who is considering their audience, someone who maybe isn't so much of an introvert or somebody who is a born performer, somebody who is super uh, invested in moving their audience but then still has that introspective quality, um, you know, and maybe in a room that's primed to listen to poetry, right? Then you start opening up doors for this thing where someone is not only just making an effective, like, forensic speech, it's also somebody who is making an, effer- an effective forensic speech that directly impacts uh, your emotional core. Yeah. These are people who are talking about um, really, really powerful things. Um, now, a bad poetry slam sometimes can feel like uh, there, there's this program in the United States called Queen for a Day. Okay. It was very popular in the 50s. Okay. Where three people would get on stage and they would talk about their sad lives and whoever had the saddest life would get the most votes from the audience and then oh they would be queen for a day, right? So there is a certain element of queen for a day in slam. Okay. Um, but... Like this whole sense of like tra- trauma, like right, bringing out exactly. your trauma, you like the parading trauma it Olympics, out. It can be really frustrating, right? But I think uh, sometimes in the right room uh, you get not just trauma, but uh, insight into mm. it. So maybe, yeah, okay, maybe it's like a let's get real-a-thon, and that can be really, str- you know, that can be really strenuous for somebody who isn't used to it. Yeah. Um, but it also can be really powerfully stimulating and, and reassuring to hear a lot of people going through something that maybe you thought you were going through alone. Yeah. Um, and unlike music, where it's a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more nebulous, right, there's like, this sort of like... Um, feelings-ish, right? Mm. Um, with poetry, uh, at least with narrative poetry, which most commonly spoken word is narrative yep. and very literal, mm. uh, 
there is an opportunity to really sort of cut up some pretty intense experiences and that can be something where you as an audience member are bonding with the performer uh, and then with sort of human beings on on mass just uh, just by virtue of like realizing that you're not alone in the experience yeah For those of you who don't know, this podcast is produced by Poet X, Malaysia's first ever poetry podcast. Check them out at Poet X Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And now, back to the episode. Which is a great tangent because I wanted to sort of jump back to the gay thing, yeah. <laughs> which, which, you, which you talked about earlier with the evangelical church, yeah. uh, the choir. Uh, but I, I just want to yeah go back, let's go back to a bit the gay being queer being gay mm-hmm. um, and also childhood and also mm-hmm. creativity did the three ever intersect oh of course yeah how Absolutely. did they intersect for okay you? well so like most of my first poems were about like these crushes that I had on boys right and like I'm sure I I couldn't tell you because I've never been a straight person right but I can tell you that you know I think there is a uniquely powerful heat to a crush. Uh, that also has this added sort of forbidden quality to it. I yeah. mean, they've done scientific studies on, like, clandestine affairs. Okay. Right? If a partnership between two people is kept secret uh, in any way, uh, it tends to be more intense. They've done, okay. like, they've done studies on this. Right. They tend to last right. longer. The feelings yeah. are deeper. The, the experiences of love are more, are more profound. Right. So when you think about those early days of high school, when like maybe you think you're the only homosexual in the entire world um, and then, you know, boys start to smell a kind of way. Mm. And I don't even mean literally. I mean, like viscerally, like there's just a thing where all of a sudden you're just like, whoa, like, <laughs> what happened to Alex? I just want to look at him all the time. now, Right. right? So, yeah. The uh, pheromones hitting hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 The pheromones uh, and, and just, you know, suddenly... Uh, it's like every chakra opens all the way mm. and it's like it's violent and it's it's scary and then in addition to oh my god what if this person knows I like them it's like oh my god what if this person knows who I am right or what I am mm. um, and so there's this added layer of like just raw heat um, and so yeah of course like a lot of my early crushes holy god I mean just the fire mm. right? just that dead that intensity that just oh I miss it I really miss it um uh but yeah so like a lot of my early work was just trying to navigate that you know and navigate it alone because I couldn't talk to anybody about it you know and that's that's in the United States where you know I mean granted it was the 90s Mm. so and I lived in the rural south uh so it wasn't like all that safe yeah. certainly wasn't you know low-key cool the way it kind of is now yeah um, but now it's so cool it, right it's well, so I mean, cool well here's the thing though is it because here's the thing like when you certainly it's not as bad as it used to be but there was definitely a big phase there where it was cool like in the way that like you know what i would refer to as purse dogging Right. What, what does that mean? Okay, so you know, like you think of like a like a socialite or like a like a sort of like 
tween sensation okay, okay. with like a, a dog oh, in, her purse, in, in the purse right? okay so like okay. when you as the gay friend or the dog in someone's purse oh right? okay like you're adorable and yeah. completely asexual and you get to tell your like female friend how cute she is the gay and, like, best you get friend. to keep her comfortable yeah exactly yeah. so like um I don't know if I can tell this story. It's super vulgar, but okay. Uh, <laughs> you can, you can. Okay, okay. So I was, I was at a party, and this is like when I was still a musician and like very punk and very just, I was a I was an asshole. And uh, I was smoking cigarette in the smoking room of this party. We used to have a party every every night, it seemed like, at these guys' houses. We called it the, the compound. And uh, <laughs> it was this big party. All the bands in our scene were there. And then like, you know, all the band's girlfriends and their friends, right? So the girl, like, was hearing me talk. She's like, oh, you're gay. That's so cute. Oh, <laughs> oh precious. So I turned around and I was like, I don't know what it is exactly you find so adorable about me, about me running another man in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and just the poor, I mean, like, if her teeth could have run away, like, her just her whole her whole framework collapsed and like poor girl like she wasn't trying to be awful she just was being awful <laughs> but I didn't need to like unleash like yeah, you the multi destroy her, right, right. yeah you know yeah. Like, <laughs> you know but like that's the thing like so it is cool mm. uh, to be gay yeah. as long as you're not super sexual yes as long as you're not dangerous yeah. Um, in any of the ways that being gay can be dangerous right because yeah. it's subversive yeah um, the same problems that people have uh People have the same problems with homosexuality now that they did 10, 20, 30, mm. 100 years ago. Yeah. It's just the way that they express those problems with it are different. Yeah. Right? So it used to be, okay, yeah, like you're homosexual and, and we're going to meet that with physical violence. And certainly that's still the case in many parts of the world. Yeah. Um, but in the United States, less so. Sure. Um, I would t uh, temper that statement with the fact that every time the economy gets bad, in any country, but especially in the U.S., I've seen it. Uh, when the economy gets bad, violence against homosexuals goes way up. Shit. Right after the uh, right after the crash in 2008, uh, there were like incidences of gay bashing in Chelsea, in like Chelsea, New York City, like the the gay neighborhood yeah. of New York. So like, right. this is a thing where it's like all of these things are super temporary. Yeah. Right. We have seen this come and go. Yeah. Um, the Weimar Republic, the German government, right before the Nazis came into power, had better rules, better laws for trans people than we have today in any country mm. um, they had more progressive policies and within 10 years that was gone so like i always say that like yes it's cool now for now in this way you know what i mean um but but it's never gonna just be fine right like even if all things being equal we're still looking at okay your dating pool is an incredibly narrow sliver of human beings right um because despite the sort of uh, blossoming of queer identity as we see it in uh, in sort of youth culture, um, there's still really only about five percent that identify as gay or lesbian. Yeah, um, and that five percent hasn't budged. Mm. So people can talk about their queer identity all they want, and uh, I'm certainly not trying to tell people that their identity isn't valid. But when it comes to being just a regular old cocksucking faggot, um, <laughs> that number hasn't shifted. Right. 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 Um, and I think it's great that people feel more comfortable uh, embracing who they are yeah. and who they genuinely are. I believe yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily uh, change the core, mm. uh, the core problem, which is a level of population, um, which is uh, a kind of uh, disconnection from your expectation of gender. Uh, and a kind of resistance, a biological resistance against patriarchy, which is still ultimately uh, goes against the status quo. Right. Right. So, again, 
maybe we don't meet just the presence of homosexuality with violence, but maybe we meet it with revulsion, yeah. um, or we meet it with comedy, yeah. or with silence, yeah. right? Because even now, um, the only, up until FX started putting out the show Pose mm. in the United States, um, which is like a really yeah, pose is brilliant. It's so queer, right? Yeah. Um, now, I I would I would argue that that show is more transcentric than it is gay centric. Definitely, and that's fine. That's yeah. great. There's yeah. never been a transcentric show I think literally ever. ever. So like, congratulations, trans people. Like, I'm happy for you. <laughs> right? mm. And like, I watch that show and I see myself too. So it's not it's not uh, it's not like it's completely divorced from the from the thing I'm talking about here. But certainly, um, before that show, the only actor who was openly gay, who was portraying a dramatic role of a gay person was Jesse Smollett on Empire. Yep. The only one. On TV. On TV. Just all TV. Yeah. Network yeah, TV, yeah. internet TV, all the TV. Yeah, my brain is scanning. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not getting, nothing's yeah. picking up. Yeah. That has changed a lot in the last few years. We're seeing a really interesting thing happen where because we have all of these methods of delivery, right? We have Amazon, we have Netflix, we have all of the streaming services, we have network TV, we have cable TV, mm-hmm. and censorship is, is sort of weakening. And because of like internet culture, we're seeing that actually like being inclusive is cool. Mm. Um, we're seeing more. Right, so there's like more shows yeah. happening. Yeah. But uh, if you had to guess how many um, openly gay people have ever won an Oscar for acting, uh, you know, you might not think it were one, mm. but it's one. Yeah. There is one, and it was in the '70s when we were at our height of popular zeitgeist. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I, I resist the idea that it's just that it's cool now that it's over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, God, you know, especially because the more over we think it is, the less over it is, if that makes any mm, sense. Okay, um, okay. Because you again, mean in, the, in this... The less vigilant we are, yeah. the more likely we're going to be taken advantage of. Yeah. We are a vulnerable population. Mm. We always will be. Yeah. You know, um, the experience of growing up gay in a straight society is necessarily damaging. Most likely you are raised by straight people. Um, most likely you are raised by straight people in uh, in a straight world, mm. you know? Um, it is the rare exception where someone grows up without any memory of one of their parents accidentally letting something slip that they forget, yeah. you know, that, that they'll never forget, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, so I think that kind of violence, especially at an early age, affects you forever. Mm. Um, and look, to, to brilliant effect, if yeah. you look at the world of the arts, the world <laughs> of literature, yeah. the world of literally anything creative, we dominate. Okay, yeah. we're talking about a tiny sliver of the population. Yeah. Okay, and yes, like in the world of music, there's a certain amount of like inroad being made by like heterosexual cultures uh, of color, mm. right? Um, but even then, I would argue that among uh, even among cultures of color, the real uh, innovators are still queers. Okay, yeah. like rock and roll is not uh, like like. 101 is like you figure out that Elvis Presley didn't invent rock, right? Yeah. That it was actually people of color. Yes. Uh, but then like 102 or like 201 mm. is figuring out that it actually wasn't like, you know, straight people of color. It wasn't yes. like, you know, those people. It was Little Richard. Yeah. Right? And we still don't talk about Little Richard. That's true. Right? Yeah. And that dude was gay. He was so gay. <laughs> so gay. Yeah. Right? Like eyeliner wearing, like large homosexual orgy after his show having like gay like mm. very gay mm-hmm. <laughs> and he invented what we consider rock and roll yeah right? so 
again, I think, you know, you look in history, you look in, in modernity, like, for whatever reason, um, you know, that particular kind of marring that happens as a result of growing up a little bit apart yeah. um, has made us very good at a subset of things. <laughs> yeah. Almost like we've um, taken all of this, like this trauma and this violence and converted it. Yeah. Um, right? Mark Doty, uh, who's a famous poet in the United States, a well-established gay poet in the United States, um, who was gay when it was not cool in literature. Okay. Um, Mark Doty uh, talks about the queer lens as being one that lends itself to art because at the one on the one hand, especially if you're talking about queer white men, right? On the one hand, you have a lot of privilege. You're given the opportunity to speak. Um, you are often at uh, you, you have resources at your fingertips that other populations don't have. Um, there are ways in which you are socialized that encourage you to think independently. Mm. But then you are also at an angle to the world. So because of that, you see things differently. And because you see things differently, that naturally um, primes you to be a, an artist or a thinker or a speaker who is uh, more empowered than somebody who has to get to the part where they question how things are some other way. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a profoundly, if you want to say that all art is introspective, um, which I think we can to some extent, yeah. um, there's, there's a solo part of the gay experience and that's kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. When you're young, when you don't have any, anybody that you've told yet, um, maybe you haven't even told yourself, right? Like yeah. there's that experience where you have there's to tell thing, yourself. Right? I yeah. remember writing down, I am gay in a journal and having like this whole experience, Yeah. right? Like. I hadn't admitted it to myself before, yeah. right? So, you know, there's that whole, like, incredibly isolating experience. And so as a result, you become very good at introspection because you have a really rich internal world. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so I think that, that yeah, queerness lends itself to, to artistry but um, and, and creativity. And, and I'm not saying that I wouldn't be creative otherwise but i'm saying that's a question i can't it, it makes no sense yeah because so you can't like, would you be it. a dancer if you didn't have a legs like i don't know like yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. like maybe what looks like dancing for me would be different but yeah. like this is it's so i feel like that's a question that people get asked a lot right like the idea of like how does your queerness interact with your art mm. and um i think more than almost any other identity queerness is so uh integral Mm. Right, because you're talking about people's sex drive, yeah. people's love drive. Like mm. these are things that are at the core of what's make what makes people people. Yeah, um, and those things being not only actively shamed, but also just being different, being just completely different. Um, it, it just it changes who you are forever, like yeah. and so thoroughly, like down to every cell. Right, um, my sister uh, has Down syndrome. Okay, and uh, not comparing uh, a, a you know degenerative disease or uh, or, or a, uh, a mental um, condition condition to homosexuality, sure. but I will say uh, that that is something that on the cellular level, every single cell in her body is just a little bit different from everybody else in the whole world. And I think that in that way, that permeative way, um, that being gay is is so different mm. from being straight mm. which is why I think what I was saying earlier about how there being like this very like solid 5% of people who identify as either gay or lesbian um, there is a difference between men who have sex with men and gay people yes um, and I think that that's 
that that those people might be allied together, but they're not the same. Yeah. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, when I look at my own sort of life history, my own creative history, I think it's it's like, I mean, yeah, they're inseparable. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I am as much an artist as I am, you know, any other thing, you know, an American or, or a man, but I think I'm, I'm gay more than any of those other things just because, like, that shapes your life so much more. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it's, it, it's everything. It's, it's, it shapes your life. It shapes your desires. It shapes your drives. It shapes what you want. It shapes what you appreciate, you know? And we don't know why. We may never know why. Yeah. But it just does. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So you've also been, at this point when we're recording this episode in November 2019, mm -hmm. you've been traveling for a while, like you said, six months. Oh, God, yeah. Um, okay. So Let's I talk a bit country. about that. Yeah. Okay. So I left the United States in July. Um, my uh, friend, Nikayla, in France and uh, her partner, Julian, uh, put me up for a month in their place uh, in bois which is a suburb of France. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, suburb of France. Suburb of Paris. Okay. So it's a... It's a it's a small village about 45 minutes away from Paris okay. by train. Um, and they put me up for a month for free. And I was, uh, I had gotten an uh, artist residency in this really small town in Finland named Suzma, Suzma, Finland. Um, and they basically were like, yeah, um, we can't pay you, uh, but you can, if you can get here, you can stay in this house for a month for free. Okay. And uh, I was at a dead end in the United States. I was really unhappy for a lot of reasons. And I, I was itching to get out. I, okay. needed, I needed, something had to change. So I left the U.S. I went and stayed with my friends in Wallawa for a month. And that was early July. And then I spent the month of August in uh, Finland. Suzma, Finland. Yep. And then after that, um, I had initially planned to tour Europe. But uh, my friend who I'd initially gotten in contact with, who had helped me book Europe before, was just going through it. He had a new job that was super demanding. He has a kid who's like super high maintenance, gorgeous kid, really, really smart, super high maintenance. Um, his wife is like a creative also and is going through a lot as well. So it was like one of those things where it just wasn't a good time. Yeah. So I had planned to leave the country for, God, as long as possible. And then I suddenly didn't have like gigs yeah you know and i'm not wealthy i have savings um from various you know things that i've done um you know odd jobs and also from you know going all the way back to when i was teaching at university yep so i can like afford to like tread water a little bit sure um but i couldn't just like you know post up in in helsinki because that's expensive so mm. um, i went to visit a friend of mine that i had made the last time i was in europe uh in italy but uh, I made the friend in Italy, but I went to visit him in his hometown of Warsaw. Okay. Um, and I spent a few weeks in Warsaw, which was so fun. Um, I loved Warsaw. Uh, and then I went to Nice because an artist that was replacing me at my residency in Finland had a place in Nice that was going to be empty for a month. And okay. so I decided I was going to spend my birthday on the Riviera. Yeah. So none of this is planned, right? This no, is just, it's just what's what's coming up. Go. The what's plan coming up, was go. to not go to the United States for a while. Okay, that was the only um, plan. Yeah, that was really the only Don't plan. Go back but when I was bit. in Suzma, a friend of mine from grad school, this guy Jack Ortiz, a brilliant fiction writer, um, is living in Bangkok or was living in Bangkok at the time, and he was like, "Oh, you should just come visit me." And I think people say that shit all the time, you know. Oh, you'd love it here, right? But like, 
I'm one of those people who have structured my life where I can just do that. So I was yeah. like, wait, really? Okay. <laughs> so I decided like, cool, like I'll figure it out. I'll go to, I'll go to Asia. And I thought, all right, you know, I've got a decent amount of savings. I make a little money this way and that way. I can probably afford to tread water in Bangkok for a couple of months and, you know, I'll experience a new culture and like, I'm to understand the food's so good. It's religious. Like, you know, like yes, all of this it stuff. It's so fucking good. Yes, it is. Oh my God. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, I got there, you know, uh, or I got to the, to the conclusion that I was going to go there like very quickly and impulsively. And then, uh, my friend who had not been able to help me much with booking in Europe, um, actually got in contact with Kat Brogan out here. Yep. And Kat Brogan has set me up with all of the gigs, mm. um, helped me connect with people in Thailand and with people in the Philippines. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, like I owe her a tremendous amount of gratitude just, just, uh, for getting me working again. I really hadn't been working. Um, and so I had initially planned to come to Asia and sit in an apartment in Bangkok for like a couple hundred bucks a month and write a book. And instead I've been traveling all over Thailand, all over Malaysia, and now all over the Philippines very quickly. Um, doing what I do, you know, reading poems for audiences, uh, teaching workshops. Um, and it's been really something, but, um, but yeah, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get a pretty high paying gig in Finland that, uh, came at the end of my residency. Okay. And then that gig helped me pay for my rent while I was in Nice. Mm -hmm. And then while I was in Nice, I got contacted by somebody who saw me perform in Finland, who wanted me to perform at an event in Sweden, mm -hmm. in um, Uppsala, which is near Helsinki, or not Helsinki, I'm sorry, uh, Stockholm. Yep. And uh, so between those two things, I was able to cover my flight out here. Mm -hmm. um, and then the work that I've been doing here has been able to cover my flight from here back to the United States. So this is like my first time circumnavigating the globe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, one of those things where I've just kind of kept my ear to the ground for opportunities. And I'm fortunate to not have a whole lot of obligations um, and to have a certain amount of money saved up and uh, a certain amount of money from, you know, various odd jobs and sources. Uh, nothing, nothing exciting like family money, but, uh, you know, certainly it doesn't hurt that I was, uh, raised with enough privilege to trust the world to catch me. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's one of those things where like, you know, because of the way I carry myself, uh, because of the way that I speak, sure. I think people assume that there's a tremendous amount of financial privilege in my family. Um, there really isn't, mm. uh, we were briefly... Uh, quite well off in the 90s and okay. then the dot-com crash kind of took care of that um, and since then we've been super up down up down up down and that that applies to both my family's finances and to mine um, but I've been independent of course for a long time now I'm an adult but I still have this sense of like well money comes money goes and you know if I'm careful if I'm smart if I keep my eyes open and like I'm paying attention like mm -hmm. I'm probably not going to starve or die sure um, sure you know so that has given me the freedom to sort of hurl myself at the planet um, in a way that maybe other people wouldn't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Has, so what, what advice would you perhaps give to somebody who is, say, considering all of these residencies, you know, as options, as, as things to possibly consider for the year ahead or at any point in the artistic career? Is okay. there any advice you could give them? Um, so first thing I would say is it depend, you, you need to know what you're trying to do. Okay. In my case, the big motivation was just, I was just going to apply for some stuff. I okay. applied for a lot of stuff. Um, I got into the Kerouac House residency, which was a big effing deal. 
Um, I got to stay there for three months. Um, I probably would have written a whole lot more than I did, but then I met one of my, one of my like, I met a boyfriend. <laughs> okay. And, um, you know, what would have been time spent writing was, you know, some of that was diverted to going to theme parks with my boyfriend. Sure. But um, still an amazing living experience. I think uh, you need to decide how important it is to you that you go into a residency and walk out with a thing. Right. right. Yeah. So like when I went back to uh, Florida, like like I said, when I went to Florida, like I walked out with a really solid chapbook and with a sort of renewed faith in my craft mm. um, and also with a really awesome set of life experiences that I yeah. did not have before. Yeah. Um, and, you know, someone who's going to be in my life forever, not as my boyfriend, but as my friend. Right? Yeah. Um, beyond that. Uh, you know, when I went to Suzma, I think I wanted again. I was like, oh, I'm going to write out, a, walk out of here with a screenplay. And instead, I walked out with sort of um, a renewed uh, sense of creativity. And, and also just I'd gotten a chance to really write every day. Yeah. Right. So I think set your expectations low or else be prepared to say no okay. to everybody. So again, like if I had gone with my original plan, I would still be in Bangkok right now. Right. Um, getting ready to go back to the U.S., but still, I would have been in Bangkok. Uh, and then a friend of mine connected me with Kat, and then I had, instead of this opportunity to sit down and write some books, uh, I instead had this opportunity to kind of rediscover uh, what it's like to have an audience, what it's mm. like to have um, artist friends, again, to really just be surrounded by other creatives who are interested in what I have to say, you know, who are... Uh, who are possessed of a different perspective and so can teach me things, um, that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think um, what I would advise is, first of all, have a good sense of what you want to do. Yep. Um, beware hidden costs. You know, just because you get a residency doesn't mean that it's going to be free. You know, often you're going to have to pay for your travel there. Some of these residencies are paid. Um I wouldn't uh, recommend like the super expensive ones, but that's kind of how I feel about everything. Like if something is like a really good school, but you end up in debt, like why are you going? You yeah. Know? Like that's the kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but overall, uh, if you're in the United States, I would say investigate Europe because Europe has so much arts funding. Um, don't be afraid to apply, especially uh, in the European sense, because those places are often free to apply to. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think, uh, I mean, okay, so a lot of my advice really only applies to people in Europe or the West, I guess, because part of the advantage of travel for me, um, you know, this is an element of privilege, is that things here are incredibly cheap to me, mm. right? So for me, you know, going to Thailand and spending 20 baht on a really good meal is Obscene. It's unheard yeah. of. Like you can't get a candy bar for one fifty in the United States. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so for the same amount of money, like you get like a whole meal and like a drink and shit, you know, and it's like wow. So uh you know investigating cost um is part of it. But also I think I don't know, it's it's incredibly loaded as a subject because I feel I've been tremendously privileged in being able to travel as much as I have. I think travel is incredibly valuable. I wish everyone could do it. I'm not going to say, oh, you have to travel because frankly, like a lot of people have to work. Okay. Um, And so if that's who you are, like, you know, there's other ways to enrich your life. But I will say that just 
throwing yourself a far distance away from everything you've ever experienced before, even though there's a lot to be said um, for globalization at this point. Uh, it's still huge. I yeah. mean, like, stupid, stupid stuff that you guys are going to think is funny. Like, just, like, seeing some monkeys hanging out. Mm. Like, that's weird to me, you know? <laughs> like, that's, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, like I, we don't have monkeys... Hanging out. Just hanging out. Yeah, you know? like, yeah. It's like a very special thing. You go to a zoo, you pay money, you sit there, you wait for one to come out of the brush. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, here, it's just yeah. like, oh, look, there's one on a telephone pole. Oh, wait, there's five. <laughs> oh, wait, they're coming from my hat. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like a thing. And that's like, that's, 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 it's, it, that's a shallow example, but sure. still, like, that's something I'll remember forever. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, anybody who does the arts for a career, who isn't super famous, um, anyone who's operating at my level, if they tell you that they're making all their money doing art, they're lying to you. I yeah. guarantee you. Yeah. Um, there's just no effing way. Mm. Okay? They are making money some other way. Yeah. I don't care if it's from their family. I don't care if it's from other odd jobs. One of the biggest sources of my income has been selling clothes online. Oh, it's really? not glamorous, but I love it. Oh, oh my God. It. Yeah, tell so, us more. Okay, so uh, the only workaday job that I've ever had that I enjoyed was working at J. Crew. I okay. loved it. Um, I loved helping people um, find clothes that fit them. It was like, unlike food service, it was something I was good at. Mm. So that helped. But also, I just loved, uh, I never thought I was going to be one of those gays who loved clothes, but like, it turns out I, <laughs> um, I love talking about them. So, like, uh, well, I'm not somebody who's like super knowledgeable in fashion. I do have sort of a sense of what's cool and what's not. Um, and so um, a big part of what I do when I'm back in the United States and I need to save up some money is I go to like, you know, thrift stores, these places that sell clothes for like next to nothing. And if I put my hand on a rack, I can usually tell from touching something whether or not it's made well or what it's made of. Ooh. And half the time you can tell if it's something high quality. And if you don't recognize the brand, you can Google it. But frankly, if you have a sense of it, you know, beyond just like the usual stuff where like, oh, look, it's an Armani tire. It's like a Gucci tire or something that's in this thrift store, right? And you find the good ones too. There's some thrift stores that suck and there's some that are like, wow, like, I don't know who's, who's gassing this place up. Yeah. Wow, you know, um, but beyond that, you know, something as shallow as like the font on a tag can give you a hint about how expensive the brand is, mm. right? And that's what Google's for also. But yeah. Okay. Um, so what, yeah. So what is this business model? Oh, I just use, I just use like sales websites like Grailed. Okay. You know, um, and I take really good photographs uh, with my phone. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, go to thrift stores, find stuff that I know is high quality or that I know is, like, super hip. You know, like, a uh, really cool, like, 80s silk jacket or something. And I'll take a picture of it and I'll sell it for three times more than what I bought it for. Ah. Um, now, I do think this is something that hedges on um, immoral if you're not poor. You know what I'm saying? If I were well off, I wouldn't do it because I okay. think that part of the deal with thrift store is that it's supposed to enable people who don't have a whole lot of money to have nice things, right? Um, but since <laughs> with a step separated, it is enabling me to have nice things. Yeah. Um, and it's not to pay for shallow stuff. It's paying for my food and for my, yeah. my cost yeah. of living. Yeah. Then I don't feel too bad about it. Okay. You know, I know plenty of people who are out there to like, you know, shop for like the nice stuff out of a thrift store and then they sell it online to pay for their lip injections and like those people should be drug out in the street you know I mean? like they just need to be stopped but like you know what I mean because like there, there needs to be a, a balance there needs to be something yeah. for the poor you know yeah. what I'm saying yeah. like I'm sorry like people who are broke people who are resourceful need to have access to these things yep. too yep. Um, but um, 
that said, I think at least right now in my current situation, like I still am justified in doing that, right? Okay. And I make quite a bit of money. Especially do you, do you still do it now, like while um, traveling? I can't do it while traveling. Okay. You know, I, I'm sure if I were more well-versed in travel that I could uh, learn. And certainly like every now and again, if I see something like there was like a shirt in Thailand that I bought where it's like, oh yeah, this will sell for a lot, you know? And I snapped it up because it was like, like nothing, Yeah. right? Um, but um, like in Chiang Mai, right? But um, overall, like I couldn't list it online right now because I don't know how the the mail shipping works system and all of those and, things. Like, yeah, once yeah, you start yeah. factoring in shipping, it's just going to be a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I've scooped a couple of things. I'm probably going to sell again later. Once you get back, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Sounds like sure. a cool idea. Cool idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and it's fun too. But I've also just enjoyed shopping for myself. You know, I love like looking at clothes anyway. So like it's been like a fun way to like kind of cycle through. Um, my own wardrobe and things like that. So yeah, so that's one of the ways. One of the ways. And, you know, it's a creative pursuit. I enjoy it. It's fun. I wouldn't do it if it weren't. But is it like the arts? No. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and I think there's this like tremendous amount of shame wrapped up in uh, being an artist if you aren't making your living as an artist, mm. right? Like, oh, you're not a real artist. You're a waiter who does art, right? Um, and certainly that's something that I'm weak to and I, I will absolutely own that I'm weak to that. And so I would rather have a really unstable life where I'm incredibly poor at some points uh, than, than have a regular workaday job. It yeah. crushes me. Yeah. Um, and that is absolutely a foible and uh, one I should probably work on. But in the meantime, <laughs> it works. Uh, you know, it works for me. I've yeah. got to figure it out. And I think that's the main thing is that like people should just feel free to figure it out, you know? Um, if you're lucky enough, like me, to not have a whole lot of attachments, um, then I think I encourage you to see where that takes you, right? Um, but I don't think residencies are conducive to building a life. Mm. So I have been putting off moving to Los Angeles for two years because of residencies, because I've had them six months apart four times. You know what I mean? Um, not this time, but sure. other times, you know yeah. what I'm saying? So, like, as a result, you know, oh, well, I can't move yet because I, I, what am I going to do? I'm going to rent out a place, and then immediately, as soon as I get stable in L.A., I'm going to leave for two months. Like, I can't do that. So, like, you know, I keep putting it off and putting it off. And so, as a result, like, yeah, I'm spinning my wheels a little bit. Now, I would argue that my work will be better for having seen most of, like, you know, a huge chunk of the world. Right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> Not that's most of the self world, justification. Like, I'm sorry. Having seen yeah. like a whole new continent. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's not a wasted time. Yeah. But it's certainly not a straight line either. Sure. Um, so I don't think a residency is a good plan if you're looking for the next big stage in your life. I think they're designed specifically for people to disrupt their lives. Honestly. Um, you know, because it takes you out of your normal environment and puts you in a new one. Yeah. And that's something you can do in a lot of different ways. So maybe you don't get a residency. Maybe you get, uh, I don't know, maybe you find a new coffee house. Yeah, <laughs> you a know? new place to work like, in, a new you job. Know, you stay with somebody, yeah. you know, in another part of the country for a hot yeah. second or like whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, there's ways to do it. Okay. So, yeah. The most popular boy in school lives on your street, two houses down. 
you're not friends, but sometimes in the summer when there's no one else around, you wander in the woods behind your cul-de-sac together, race your bikes to the convenience store to buy blue popsicles and cans of Coke. One night, he brings you where the half-completed skeletons of houses being built for the new subdivision stand amidst construction vehicles and piles of lumber in a field of torn-up earth. You sneak across the newly poured concrete of a foundation, climb a set of wooden stairs, and there between two panels of new sheetrock, he shows you how to worship him. The weather changes, and soon school starts again. Every year, they hold a big assembly in a darkened auditorium for everybody in your grade to watch an ancient film on the metamorphosis. First, a flickering projection of a boy stares out past the camera in confusion as new muscles ripple underneath his shirt. Then, a girl goes on a date with someone who is pressuring her to go all the way. In the end, she transforms into a laurel tree. By the time the lights come on, you know the word for what you have become, what you were transformed into the night Narcissus took you by the neck and pushed your head into his lap until you choked. After school, you go back to the place it happened, but the house is finished now and nothing looks the same. The next day, someone leaves a sword inside your locker, wrapped up pretty like a gift. Hmm. I think I think I was able to. I think there's a lot of teen angst there, yeah, yeah. a lot of pain, which is which is which works with this conversation we've had, yeah, right? When yeah. we talk about when we talk about the trauma that we hold in our bodies, yeah, yeah and yeah, and sure. and how that comes out through art. Um, I really like that line shows you how to worship him because it it adds so much. Like it could be highly problematic, but it could also be very loving. Yeah. There's that levels to it. How are well, you feeling? I, I mean, I think I think it's both, right? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a weird poem, right? Because to me, this is a myth I'm very familiar with. Yeah. Um, but it's one that is not uh, super well known. The myth of narcissists. Well, specifically the queer reading of the myth of narcissists. So narcissist. Nar- wow. <laughs> narcissist. Uh, is is commonly told in a way that was edited for straight consumption, like pretty much everything else we make. Um, so the idea of Narcissus now is he was this really beautiful boy, a female fell in love with him, um, but she had been cursed, so she had no physical form. And so a narcissist being a, a narcissist yeah. uh, fell in love with his own reflection once it had a female voice. Right. Oh. Okay. So he looks in the pool. He sees his own face. He says, you know, uh, like, you know, he says things to himself that echo the nymph who has no body but can only say what she has just heard says back to him. Um, and so he, you know, uh, he was like, you know, you're beautiful. You are beautiful. Right. Like. I think I love you. I think I love you, right? So, like, it's this thing, right? And that's where we get narcissism from in that respect. But the yeah. original reading of the myth was actually um, uh, an older male suitor falls in love with the, you know, what was considered the Greek ideal, right? The mm-hmm. ideal, the ideal know, man. sort of, like, boy's boy, beauty, right? Yeah. right? Like, this sort of, like, you know, post-adolescent boy, so, like, you know, mid-teens. Um, and, uh, you know, early mid-teens, but... 
whatever. <laughs> you know, uh, he falls in love with this boy, and he, you know, he is besotted, and he, you know, pursues him, and Narcissus uh, kind of toys with his feelings for a little while, and then eventually he gives him the gift of a sword, which is to say, you know, effectively kill yourself. Like I'm not interested. Um, and uh, Aminius, you know heartbroken does just that but he does it and he curses narcissus's entire house and he does it on the doorstep of narcissus's house uh and narcissus catches his reflection in the blood of his rejected suitor and that's how he becomes the flower he falls in love oh, with his reflection in the blood yeah so it's like a much more powerful and like messed up story yeah um and it's, you know like all things in their original queer reading uh more powerful <laughs> <laughs> mm. you know um but look, you know they'll edit any, they'll edit any part of history they can. So like, yeah, part of the reason why I'm attracted to this story is because it's so different when it's given this queer reading, right? Because we all know those boys who enjoy toying with gay male affection, mm. you know. And I'm not one to say that there isn't any attraction going on there. In fact, I imagine there is. But regardless, the end result is that you know you make someone feel foolish uh, and and ugly in a way that they really can't feel otherwise. You know, um, you really want to make someone feel like a moose, just lead them on, you know, yeah. in this way. And so I think, uh, especially when we're young, I think we encounter that person and they inspire or engender in us such incredible hope. Uh, and I think having those hopes dashed is, is devastating. Um, and then add to that the fact that in those sort of primordial sexual times in our lives. I think there are plenty of people who have same-sex experiences who later go on to be fully legitimately straight. Um, but, you know, simply because they're intoxicated with power and they haven't been imbued with all of the rules of adulthood yet, um, or, you know, because they're drying it out or whatever it is, you know, so you have these moments where, like, maybe the person who's legitimately queer is, like, besotted. They're so in love. And the other person is like, meh. You know, and so it's like there's there's a tremendous amount of cruelty in children anyway, but then adding the sort of like razor thin edge between childhood and adulthood and adding in sex at the same time, it's like necessarily violent. Um, and so I wanted to take that moment and this sort of other thing that and had much. been kind of re rewritten. So like part of the pleasure of this poem for me is that I get to tell people this little tidbit of queer history yeah. that they don't know, right, which is a big part of like my praxis, right? Um, but then the other equally large part of my praxis is talking about queer pain uh, circa high school. That's like yeah. a big part of my life. <laughs> so, you know, because I, I mean, because, you know, here's the thing. They did research on, on why first experiences are the ones that we recall, right? You know, uh, when people are old, old men and women, when they are asked about their lives consistently, statistically, they will talk about the time between the age of 17 and 27, that is the time. Mm. Um, and on the one hand, it's incredibly soul-crushing because it's like, oh, okay, well, that time's already over for me. So <laughs> just, um, you know, just swimming upstream at this point, right? But, like, it is a thing where first experiences are incredibly psychologically potent. So those first experiences with sexuality, especially coupled with the way that adolescence and queerness all merge together, um, that's the soup that I think I draw a lot of, of my... Uh, meat from mm. you know um, but you know I, I don't think it's just because of like the whole like media obsession with high school I think that actually that that's the thing that comes after 
the first experience having its potency, right? Because adults are writing about high school all the time. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah. So that's that's sort of like a way to ground this myth in mm. modernity in a way that I think can give people that visceral connection to it that they might have lost otherwise, right? Because, you know, narcissists like staring at himself in a pool, like yawn, right? Like, sure, it's a beautiful painting, but it doesn't really, um, at least for me, it didn't do any work to make me uh, love that character, right? But, like, I know the narcissist that, that I was able to write into this poem. Like, I yeah. know that boy. Like, and I'm not saying that there's, like, a literal boy. Like, that didn't happen to me. Right? Yep. Um, but certainly sim- similar things, sure. right? You know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, have happened to me, have happened to everybody, right? Where they have those moments. And so I think uh, my intention there was to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, almost capture this moment in time for yourself and other people and then weave in mythology. Yeah. And try to, try to humanize a myth in a way that makes it so that people can connect with it. Because I think... Uh, the thing that history often does is it takes the vulgar or the you know the the low art experience mm-hmm. out of a story, yeah. right? So low art being you know what causes emissions, laughter, um, tears, uh, <laughs> ejaculation, right? So these yeah. are things that that people experience when they are appreciating low art, right? High art is like high thoughts and you know mm. praxis or 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 um, you know. Uh, aesthetic arrest right like that's the high art thing so when you talk about these myths these old stories you know the old poems like I was saying before you know uh, you lose the heat that physical heat mm. um, and so I love I love a retelling of a myth just because it gives you an opportunity to make something like that sexy again yeah and that's like super fun work to do so mm. that's a work that that's a piece that I think I'm like it's like towards the top of the pages for me right now it's something that I that I love reading just because it's like doing all the things that I like to do in one place. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, we've reached the final, final bit, which is the rapid-fire round. Oh, good luck. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the idea of the rapid-fire round is basically first thoughts that come to mind, sort of like tapping into an immediate instinct or intuition of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be one-word answers, but tight. That's the idea, right? Okay. Okay, so the first two questions are connected. The idea is that if someone is starting on a creative pursuit for the first time, uh, whatever it is, whatever choice of creativity they're dabbling in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a brand new person. What mm-hmm. creative advice would you give them? Uh, experience other kinds of, uh, experience other people's art. Um, so if you're a poet, you need to read other poets. Um, flee your contemporaries. <laughs> okay. Um, and try really, really hard to find things outside of your scene, outside of your oof, outside of your art form even. If you're a painter, read some poetry. If you're a poet, watch some painting, you know, watch some some uh, movies or, or look at some paintings, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, yeah, experience art more. Um, you'll get a sense of what's old and what's been done and what maybe isn't being done that maybe you could do. So it's like a way to do it. Cool. What life advice would you give this same person who's starting out? Uh, don't expect anything. Um, <laughs> if you can possibly do something else, do it. Uh, you know, I, I love being an artist, but it's not fun. <laughs> it's work. You know, yeah. it's really work. Uh, don't believe anything that, you, that you've been told about being an artist. Uh, if you're going to pursue it professionally or even just, you know, professionally pursue it (laughs) right 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 okay Uh, looking back since we sort of did like a bit of tracking of your Mm -hmm. career of sorts uh, your histories 
What advice would you give to your younger self? Um, God, waste less time. I think, um, you know, my advice for myself changes all the time, but I just, I think about how many video games I played as a kid. <laughs> I had so much free time, you know, mm. that I could have spent creating, that I could have spent, you know, like before you have to start thinking about money and time and, you know, before the clock starts ticking for you as an artist, I think, you know, assume less, work more. I wish that that had been my thing, mm. you know. Mm. Okay, last question. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give me? One creative to another, one human to another, whichever works. Ooh, okay. Um, hmm. I feel like, uh, oh man, this is a hard question. If someone's <laughs> sitting in front of you, like, what can you do to better yourself, dude? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, like, I think that I, I think that same advice stands. I think yeah. it's about like reading more, you know. Mm. Um, but also, I think trusting your instincts, right? Okay. One of the things that I think happens, uh, you know, uh, regardless right. of your, uh, like, regardless of your uh, position in society, I think if you're not super privileged in all the ways, right? Like, yep. if you're not like rich and white and straight and Western, right? Uh, Every layer of that that gets peeled away, mm -hmm. um, you uh, you lose a little bit of inborn confidence, right? Mm. And and that's a level of invalidation for what uh, you think your your perspective might be worth. And like, uh, I think it's super important to value your perspective within uh, both within like its moment globally but also like in draw community right like what do you know that other people don't know both worldwide and within your community and like how does that like you know just be emboldened by the ways in which you are unique if that makes sense yeah you know yeah. that's what i would say like to any creative who was sitting in front of me but like i think especially like, when you're dealing with somebody who's not like growing up in the united states sure right or yeah. who is not you know who is brown like i yeah. think these are things that like absolutely um can be made to work against you and should be made to work for you. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. So just to sort of wrap up, I just want to acknowledge the work that you're doing, um, the queer light that you are shining, but also the stories that you are telling. Thank you so much. Oh, no. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to tell them, you know. You want to, you know, pull my chatty Kathy string, man. I love being wound up and like to spin, so <laughs> lucky you. Um, you know, but seriously, thanks. Yeah. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah. The Creative Curry Podcast is produced by Podex. Huge shout out to my producers, Safwan Siddiq, Hanis Farah, and Azam Rice. This episode is also edited by Safwan Siddiq. The show is created and hosted by me, Dinesha Katigesu. You can find me and my work online at dinesha.com. D-H-I-N-E-S-H-A dot -E Thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to keep telling the stories that you are telling.